Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Uh, You might remember a a while ago we were talking about how this year a lot of the episodes of Book Shambles that we're going to do, we're going to be like magazine style. We're going to have a couple of guests on each episode talking about their new book. And we recorded uh, quite a lot of interviews with those people that were going to be on those shows. Then obviously uh, COVID-19 happened. So what we've decided to do instead is we're going to release the full interviews with each person that was going to be cut down to be on the magazine show. We're going to release those full interviews as individual episodes so you can continue getting new episodes each week as long as, uh, or for as long as possible before we're allowed to get back into the studio. There will still be uh, these interviews. There will still be extended versions of these for Patreon people as well. So thank you very much, as always, to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles. It was great to see a lot of you online for our live stream that we did last week with Robin and Josie and myself and Grace Petrie. We're going to do another one soon as well. So keep an eye on your Patreon inboxes for those. If you did miss it live, uh, the secret link that we sent out is still active. So you can uh, go to that secret link and watch the show that you missed live. Also, the Stay at Home Festival continues to run online while we're all in lockdown. Robin and Josie live with a morning show every day at 10am, which has uh, morphed into Shambles College, a different topic with a different tutor each day. Uh, If you're listening to this first thing in the morning, today's topic is particle physics with Professor Brian Cox. Tomorrow is uh, crime fiction with Ian Rankin. And then uh, previously we've had uh, Natalie Haynes has been on this week and A.L. Kennedy, uh, Mark Gatiss coming up next week with a horror lesson. So cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home for that schedule. And we can uh, drop a tip in our tip jar there as well for performers and venues who are being hit really hard right now. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get on to this week's episode. Uh, And our guest is a... Cosmic Shambles Network blogger and regular at a lot of our live shows. She's written the excellent book, Say Why to Drugs. Here is Robin chatting to Susie Gage in the studio back in late January, I think. Good Lord, so much has happened since then, hasn't it? Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. And uh, I'm joined by the drug addict Susie Gage. Oh, no, that's not what it says, is it? That's the. Uh, um, I'm joined by Susie Gage, who does a, a fabulous podcast called Say White Drugs, which she has now taken some of the information that she got from that and then spent an enormous amount of time researching other drugs that she may not have reached yet in that podcast to write the book Say White to Drugs. And um, it's a great book. It's a very uh, useful book. I've now reached an age where I don't do drugs, so it's of no use to me. I, w- I was never much of a person for them, but I'm, I'm not going to be. It's going to be useful for me when I'm about, I, once my son's grown up, 
I'm going to be like Alan Arkin in Little Miss Sunshine uh, or William Donaldson, who wrote the Henry Root letters. And I'm going to go, oh, I should probably take lots of uh, LSB. LSD, LSE, whatever it is now, that's what I should do. And I'm going to uh, try all manner of things, and uh, but only when he's distant enough and I've fulfilled my role as a parent. So it's going to be useful, I reckon, in, if I survive to about 2034. Excellent. Although, I mean, what's in your mug right now? Oh, uh, yeah. It's all drugs, isn't all it? All drugs. Everything's How did you drug. know that I was having mushroom tea? <laughs> Uh, some the, of the questions. The, yeah. Some of the questions. <laughs> well, this is. I mean, you start. Off, first of all, when did you become? You're, you're you know, an epidemiologist. You uh, at what point? Can you define by though? Because I always find epidemiologist is one of those titles yeah. which does not initially sound like what you actually do. No, no. So it what doesn't. is an epidemiologist? So it comes from epidemic rather than epidermis. Lots of people and. Someone told me I was making this up, but it genuinely has happened lots. Lots of people ask if I do something with the skin. I do not do something with the skin. That's dermatologists. Epidemiologists uh, look at patterns in big data, sort of population level data. Usually, I mean, not usually, actually, but the research that I do is interested in what people do. But you can also use it to look at sort of data in like coral reefs or, you know, whatever you Mm. want. But it's looking at patterns in data so the, the term comes from epidemic, so looking at the spread of disease in in populations. Um, but it's also, it could be just sort of how things are related in terms of kind of public health. So lots of the so-and-so causes cancer or cures cancer, or, all that work is quite often uh, done by epidemiologists for our sins. So the book that I read, Everybody Lies, do you know this book? Have we talked about this before? No. It's, it's a fun book, which was basically using Google searches to show kind of the, the, the secret side of us yeah um i forget the name of the author but it's uh and so looking at for instance different sexual peccadilloes you find in different nations or things that worry partners most mm. so you know the, the the main worry uh i think in the u.s is not uh is my husband cheating looking up that for is uh is my husband gay that's like the sexuality is one of the one of the main worries there and then, uh, but it goes in lots of different places. And it, uh, Seth Stevens Davadovitz is the uh, um, name of the author. But I found that would that count as a form of epidemiology? The fact that the collating the the, the structure of, of of queries does that enter into becoming data or of of the hmm. correct kind? I mean. I wouldn't necessarily want to say what is or isn't epidemiology, but the same kind of principles would apply, definitely, of sort of thinking about patterns in data or in populations and then trying to work out. I guess epidemiology is particularly interested in like what causes what. So you see um, lots of... So, for example, how we first discovered that smoking causes lung cancer. That was from looking at big uh, data sets and the people who chose to smoke were more likely to later on get lung cancer, even after other differences between them were taken into account. So usually it's kind of with a sort of aim to answer a question in mind, although I guess it doesn't have to be. So when did you first become culturally aware of drugs? Because I was thinking about that. I don't mean in, in an academic way. Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up, the two things that was, uh, I'm pretty certain there were public information films about glue sniffing. You know, they'd always worry if you saw anyone who had cold sores all around. That was the big one. And then Grange Hill singing, you know, no, just say no, the kind of Grange Hill, Hill plots. That was how 
Uh, and then I moved into reading William Burroughs' Junkie and novels by Hunter S. Thompson. But that's the kind of path, I think, of being a, even aware of this idea of drugs and yeah. drugs. Yeah, so I had a similar Burroughs-obsessed uh, late teenage years. But before that, I, I remember... Um, I remember The Shaman on top of the pops singing Ease a Good and telling my dad what that meant and him going, what? Oh, um, okay. Uh, and I was definitely, can't have been that old then. Um, I remember a policeman called PC Ham, which is unfortunate, coming into our school and with a suitcase with a glass front showing us various different sort of drugs behind this glass in his suitcase and talking about what some of the criminal risks of drugs were. And I really vividly remember Leah Betts, um, mm. who was a young woman who took uh, MDMA ecstasy uh, at a house party, drank, had been told that, oh, if you're taking ecstasy, it's really important to drink water, but drank so much water that she uh, poisoned herself with water, basically, mm. and died. And her that case got an awful, awful lot of media attention when I was a young teenager I guess I can't remember exactly when it happened because that, that, that's the thing that many years later led to uh, David Nutt losing his uh, governmental post pretty much wasn't it because his his thing about um, equity yes which was I mean really you know taking the the comparison between if you do get as as, as you know as an epidemiologist that the outlying unusual events are reported and thus we believe are about to happen to us around the corner and he, he took the fact that the number of people who uh, horse ride recreationally the number of accidents the number of deaths the number of life-changing injuries is far greater than, than those uh, things that would have happened from people recreationally taking drugs and of course that there's a thing specifically a, 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 MDMA a, yes yeah. a morality that kicks in uh, at yeah. that point yeah so that is that must be part of the battle when you're doing this, which is you know the, the, there's no kind of uh, there's 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 neither celebration nor more. You just go here are the facts. Yeah. This is, but you must have bumped your head against kind of a certain level of uh, possible moral or ethical outrage every now and again. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way because I've made it quite clear that I am doing this in a sort of scientific study kind of a way, and I'm not talking about uh the like policies around drugs i deliberately don't talk about that in the book the book is about what we know about the substances um obviously that you have to then refer to the fact that because we operate in a society where a lot of these substances are illicit knowing what you're actually taking is quite difficult sometimes particularly if you're taking like a tablet or a, or a white powder it's very hard to know what's in that. You buy it thinking it's something, but it might not be that thing. It could be something with completely different effects. It could be something a lot more potent. It could be something a lot less potent. It could be talcum powder. You know, um, we don't know these things when we buy something from a drug dealer or off the internet without any regulation. So that has to be acknowledged when you're talking about the science of these drugs. But in terms of personally doing this kind of work, not as often as you might think have I come up against the kind of moralising. However, in the research and in the sort of where the myths and misconceptions around drugs come from, yes, it's everywhere, absolutely everywhere. So when we're look at, looking at the... You, you cover a lot of drugs in this, and you, and in, in, you talk about, for instance, what uh, they do to the brain, different receptors, 
uh, neurotransmitters, etc. And that's what. So overall, when we're talking about illegal drugs or drugs generally, we're is there is there a pattern which we could like LSD? You talk about LSD and the fact that you know. I, I certainly know users and uh, who have written about and in fact, fact when you also read some of the, the people in the early days John C. Lilly who was the guy who uh, for listeners who don't know um, uh, did a lot of experiments with hallucinogenic drugs and really in his book Journey to the uh, Centre of the Cyclone in the, he talks about I, I, it's going to change everything and the whole of humanity is going to basically realise that it's all one and it's you know and there was so much hope I mean really kind of mm-hmm. utopian hope in uh, in things like LSD and, and Timothy Leary as well really yeah. passionately believed that LSD was going to change the world yeah Leary is an because he he becomes so kind of political doesn't he in, in the uh, and there's uh, I highly recommend reading uh, John Higgs's America uh, Have You Surrounded yes, which is a biography of, uh, of Timothy Leary and it's, I can't remember it's Winona Ryder right the introduction yes so, yeah yes because she was his uh, goddaughter I think yes yeah but yeah John Higgs who we've mentioned many and has been on the show before is, is great but but I, I'm fascinated by you know that those people have talked about oh by the way he also gave LSD to dolphins and it didn't help them speak English the, the those uh, sadly John C Lilly like a lot of those kind of scientists who start off uh just acceptable academic scientists and then go into a slightly kind of you know arcane area all of their work is then kind of dismissed. But he was an interesting man, and, and he, got talk, he did write a book all about um, communication with animals because he became quite obsessed um, for a while with trying to communicate with dolphins. And it's kind of, you know, and it came from a good place of, of, of and, and he is worth reading about. But that idea, a lot of those, those um, early texts, there is a sense that the LSD is lighting up a bit of the brain that's never lit up before. Mm-hmm. And these kind of ideas that it, it's, it, it's, it's almost brain that's it's just not used. And they yeah. take LSD and it works. But that's not really what's going on. No, well, so this kind of research is having a bit of a, a renaissance, I guess, at the moment, that kind of our understanding of psychedelics and in particular whether they have any potential um as medication particularly for mental health problems is is something that's really sort of going on at the moment it's this research has been rekindled and is restarting and and part of that has been able to use this technology that we have now that we didn't have in the sort of 50s and 60s and 70s when this work was being done before there was a kind of a sort of stop well, whether the stop was put on it or whether it sort of it stopped for other reasons is, is kind of difficult to say. But it did stop and it seems to be restarting again. And now we've got like brain scanners and that kind of thing. So we can look in different ways at well, what is is there any evidence at all that LSD is switching on bits of the brain that aren't normally used? Um, and in a way, it seems actually like it's the opposite. And so rather than um, finding new bits of the brain, what the brain on LSD or the brain on psilocybin magic mushrooms looks like is instead of seeing this really streamlined hubs and with strong connections between them, what you tend to see is far more global connectivity and, and the loss of these kind of hubs while someone's intoxicated. And that goes it goes back to kind of 
for want of a better word, normal, um, back to the more expected pattern of kind of hubs and streamlined connectivity after a person stopped being intoxicated. But during intoxication, you see less strong connections, but far more of them all over the brain. So if anything, this is more like a kind of young child's brain, because we start off with far more connections in our brain um, than we... I was going to say need, but that's not the right word, than then we end up with. Yeah. Um, and childhood and adolescence is kind of a, a period where the brain works out which pathways in the brain are useful for it, makes those stronger, and the pathways that aren't being activated kind of disappear. So that's really interesting, right? Like that there's maybe something more sort of childlike about LSD or psychedelic intoxication and maybe that makes sense because when we are children like being a child is kind of like psychedelic isn't it you know with you see you're far more creative you see patterns in things um things like um conditions like synesthesia which is when two senses get connected so some people have this condition throughout their lives but it's it's something that you sort of have in early childhood and then kind of goes away where so some people see letters as colours or hear sounds when they taste things or vice versa, like sounds have tastes associated with them. So senses that shouldn't or aren't normally connected become or remain connected in people with synesthesia or become connected during a psychedelic trip. So maybe that's something to do with this sort of more more connections that uh, go in down down less well travelled paths, or you know something like that. Well, I'm interested as well in that how these things change with age as well. Even though I realise that the, the basic kind of hardware as such is is about somewhere between eighteen and twenty four, isn't it? Which we see now as the you know going the the brain may still change, but in terms of from oh in age, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One. So, um, but. For instance, when I stopped smoking cannabis, which was because I started to find that I was always paranoid afterwards, which yeah. had not been the problem before. And then I went, oh, and I wondered whether that was the stress of existence, whether it's the change in, in you know, your kind of whatever it might be in terms of what you have to be in, a, you know, societally. Yeah. There, there's a point where it was like, oh, no. I and mean, that's why I've never done any of the, um, you know, hallucinogen stuff is that I, don't, I think I'm far too paranoid and anxious as a person to find myself going off it you know the people that it seems to me who are having the the best and most creative times with it are people who seem reasonably relaxed with themselves in the first place whereas you know whichever of the rabbit holes i end up down it's you know the anger of the queen the croquet mallet to the head you know the ruthlessness of the flamingo's beak i'm terrified <laughs> well i guess that's why it can be so hard to sort of understand what drugs do is because we bring so much to an intoxication experience like this idea of set and setting where the the mood you're in <clears throat> excuse me the mood you're in who you're with um all all these kind of things can really influence the type of intoxication experience that you have and that's even more the case with psychedelics because it's such a kind of perceptual altering intoxication experience but it's also why it's really hard to know like well do psychedelics really make you more creative or is it just that it's creative people who are drawn to use psychedelics so that's that's why you see this pattern um and it's really difficult to untangle that and certainly 
for some people, doing psychedelics would be a really bad idea. If you've got a history of, of mental ill health in your family, for example, then lots of psychedelics, as well as you think, oh, wow, just wacky visuals and that kind of thing. But actually, it can also really be quite an emotional experience. It can bring traumatic memories um, kind of to the surface. And so potentially, if people aren't ready for that or expecting that, that can be really difficult. And some pe- that's why some people like using psychedelics, because they think it gives them a space to think about these kind of things. But for other people, that would be absolutely horrific and not what they want at all. I can see that 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 thing where you talk about, you know, those who I think sometimes their, their path of use comes from looking at you know, the elevator, the artists who made it. So I've certainly known people who think, oh, Dylan Thomas, he was an alcoholic, wasn't he? Maybe if I'm an alcoholic, I'll write really nice poetry. And you go, no, 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 the poetry has to be there first. Mm-hmm. And and I think that those kind of myths that one will lead to the other, most of the, the fascinating creative people were already on on that journey. Probably all of them. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think you can... Uh, I mean, that. The, sorry, keep going back to LSD, but it's uh, just because I'm thinking about 2032 and what I'm going to be doing it then. Um, but uh, some of the myths as well. Because you talked about the fact that um, in the book you mentioned it, I think it's also in in, in Michael Pollan's quite recent mm. book as well, um, which is there where it was being used, as far as I know, reasonably effectively for, for instance, alcoholics that had had some success. Yeah, I think we've also we've got better at designing studies to assess its effectiveness in the intervening years. Certainly the case, I know the literature better around ketamine and there were studies looking at using ketamine to treat alcoholism. And some of the idea behind that was because ketamine can have a slightly psychedelic effect, although it's not what you'd class as a psychedelic, but it does have some aspects of psychedelia in the intoxication effect. And studies done in the 60s or 70s in Russia were looking at using ketamine as a treatment for alcoholism and found some success but they wouldn't stand up to sort of scientific scrutiny now they weren't particularly rigorously carefully designed studies they didn't have sort of adequate control groups or they weren't properly blinded so you knew who was in which condition and because it's quite subjective how someone's doing um basically they were just sort of interesting interesting findings but not compelling so i think it's really good that this is kind of carrying on now to take these ideas that were sort of glanced at and gone oh that could work and come back to them and go well let's really let's really interrogate this sorry to interrupt your podcast but i just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing which is that book shambles and the cosmic shambles network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on patreon if you want to support the podcast and what we do tiers start at just one dollar a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in so go to patreon.com slash book shambles because the, the the end of LSD was because uh, I mean lots of when people first start reading about it and they find out about Cary Grant and all those other kind of celebrities who actually I think talked about it in something like Women's Realm or <laughs> one of those things in the, in the nineteen fifties and there's actually a very entertaining TV play that was made which was uh, a, a apocryphal tale it never happened though they did communicate with each other in which Timothy Leary goes to visit Cary Grant and they they have a trip and it's uh, yeah very entertaining but that. The idea for many people, their 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 main knowledge would be the sense that if you took it, you believed you could fly. Yeah. And I think that comes from I think it was a a, a TV 
guy called Art Linkletter. I think it was his daughter. Mm-hmm. But I think it's John Waters' first movie, which doesn't exist anywhere anymore. as a short film of him remaking in, in his normal sick style uh, that particular death. So, so something like that, yeah. in terms of the research that we have now, um, how true is that? But, well, being intoxicated in a sort of precarious position is a really bad idea. And far more than people on LSD believing they can fly and jumping off buildings, we see drunk people falling off balconies or injuring themselves. Um, But you wouldn't say, oh, alcohol makes you think you can fly. That's why that person fell off that balcony is because they thought they could fly. So LSD does alter your perception, but does it alter it enough to make you believe that you can fly? I'm not sure. However, if you're if your perception has been altered and you're near a window that could be really really dangerous so it's important to be safe if you're going to take a substance but whether lsd can make you fly i mean i'm 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 not convinced so the in terms of mental health in the long term so not during the actual uh, specific effects but overall no uh, um in terms of different drugs that is something which again makes the media quite often press I, I, I suppose the the most famous example of that is probably Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd who was seen as that he uh, I'm going to use the term schizophrenia but I would then say also listen to an interview with Nathan Fine about <laughs> what schizophrenia so I'll, I'll, I'll use that as the kind of what, what was used at the time yeah um, and that was seen as being by by some people as caused that mm. the actual cause itself was uh, his uh, ingestion of drugs yeah and i think it's really so this is what i do as a sort of day job as well is research the trying to understand the links between drug use and mental health and i've tended to focus on particularly cannabis and tobacco and i guess alcohol as well um but psychedelics are definitely other substances that are linked with poor mental health and there are rare occasions where someone will take a psychedelic and have an extreme reaction to it um, and experience psychosis afterwards. That's also true of alcohol. People can have alcohol and develop alcohol-related psychosis afterwards, and it's true of other drugs as well. Um, but whether whether that is strong enough to say that that means that, that LSD or cannabis or whatever can cause a severe mental health problem like psychosis is is too much of a leap and actually what we know is that there's so many other things that also increase your risk and maybe for a certain subgroup of people for whom they already have a lot of the other risk factors then taking a psychedelic or a drug like cannabis or a drug like alcohol could be the thing that sort of tips them over that balance between sort of being okay and not being okay but we don't know who those people are we don't know what all the other risk factors are and as i'm sure you spoke about with nathan we don't actually really know what these mental health problems are the kind of the the term schizophrenia is such a wide umbrella label that two people can have completely non-overlapping symptoms yet be given be told they have the same disease and that doesn't sound quite right Mm. and I think that it's not going to be long before 
or potentially it's not going to be long before we look back at this use of the term schizophrenia and, and think, oh, that was archaic. What were we talking about? It's much more useful for the patient to or the person to understand, to talk, think about it in terms of clusters of symptoms and what's actually what the person is actually experiencing in terms of working out how best to treat them. But also what, in terms of drugs, what would be really useful would be to be able to better identify, well, who is likely to be particularly at risk from these substances? Because the truth is that most people who use an, a, a recreational drug will not experience any problems from doing so. But for the people who do, those problems can be severe, like long-term mental health problems or um, overdose and potentially death. So and also dependence or addiction and being unable to stop taking the substance and all of the other stuff that goes along with that as well. In terms of the research that's done, it as you've already mentioned it, part of the problem is the subjectivity that's involved as well. But how does someone, I know that you, at the University of Liverpool where you are, there is, uh, is this right, there's a, a kind of a, a lab bar. Yep. There's, a, there's a, a bar that's actually set up with laboratory conditions as well. So... Can you run through how that would get used then in terms of research? Yeah, so the idea behind this is that when we do um, research looking at kind of intoxication effects of alcohol, as I've already said, like where you are really impacts on how you experience alcohol. And it's not a very real-life setting to be sitting in a kind of lab room in a university with sort of bare floors and strip lights on the ceiling and a computer next to you and no one else around just you with your drink and whatever task you're doing on the computer or whatever's being monitored it's not how people drink and so if you're interested in sort of how quickly someone drinks a drink or you know all of this kind of thing yes you can have a very controlled environment but it's it's not how people behave in the real world so how applicable are those findings so what um is Abby Rose, who is a um, one of my colleagues at Liverpool, she decided to set up this bar lab, which basically is to sort of create a room that looks like a pub, but in the university, in the building. So it's got a bar and it's got um, sort of, uh, what are they called? What yeah. are they called? The things that you pull a pint from. Yeah, I don't know what the actual word is for that. No. Yeah, the thing you pull a, a best best bitter. Yes. Get your car pump, scale from. A beer yeah. pump. Beer pump, that's it. That'll yeah, do. Beer pump, yeah. um, and then optics for your shots and sort of, uh, it's got little tables. They're not quite as sticky as if it was a real, well, the kind of pubs I go to. Maybe that says more about me than pubs. But uh, <laughs> you've got, but then you can also do really interesting kind of as well as it being a more naturalistic environment to do some of these studies particularly looking at how quickly people drink because you can have lots of people in there for example um but you can also do things like one of the things that um people are quite interested at the moment is environmental nudges like can we encourage people to not drink to excess when they go out so you can do things like you can change the posters that are up and do people drink faster if there are posters showing like like alcohol promotions like two shots for a quid I mean I live in Liverpool maybe it's not quite that cheap but you know what I mean um <laughs> compared to um so, like don't drink and drive posters or you know um if you have more non-alcoholic drinks visible do people change the choices that they make about what they drink so you know you can really control the environment in your study but also have it be a bit more naturalistic as well 
Have you found, when you were researching this book, what was the, what were the most difficult drugs to research? I mean, what, what are the ones where you go, well, there's almost nothing on here? And, and in terms of, I presume as well, there are times where get, getting research into some of the drugs is extremely difficult to, to actually get uh, you know, permission to do the research. must be problematic with certain drugs, is it? Well, I guess it depends what type of research you're doing. If you're trying to administer a drug to someone and measure like intoxication experience, then that can be harder to do. If, if the drug is controlled, then you need certain sort of home office licenses and that kind of thing. But there are research groups around the country that have those licenses, so it can be done. Um, what the? But quite. But if you're just asking people about what they choose to do, then you can ask people mm. anything, um, ethics permitting, of course. But um, generally that kind of research is is possible to do on any substance but it's more that the difficult ones to write about are the newer ones so there's two chapters at the end that are about uh, what used to be called novel psychoactive substances or new psychoactive substances or were sort of erroneously called legal highs so this is things like synthetic cannabinoids sometimes called spice or things like that and also the synthetic cathinones so things like methadrone and um and substances like that so because those a there's loads of them because that's how it was kind of working just before the um what's it called psychoactive substances bill was brought in a few years ago each sub each substance would appear um be found be made illegal and then the molecule would, would be tweaked and a new one would appear that was no longer covered by the that ban and the process would happen again and again so there were loads of them they all had slightly different effects and you don't need to tweak a molecule that much for it to have quite different effects mm. to previously so it was really risky for kind of everyone involved um and so researchers are kind of always playing catch up in those situations because you need to wait for it to appear and then find out what it is and then investigate it and by that point there's like two more have happened down the line so you're always kind of behind but also drugs there were some drugs that I hadn't heard of when I started making the podcast and researching the book um that people had got in touch after listening to the podcast going I'd really like an episode on and one one of them was Kratom or Kratom I said oh, yeah, I do, yeah, I read, yeah, in the audiobook I have really had a real debate about because most of the people I've spoken to who research it are Americans and they all call it Kratom and I was just like but if I read my audiobook with my very southern accent going oh and now we're doing some research on a kratom it would just sound really odd so i had to, i said kratom and i did well if people disagree sorry it's only a short chapter you'll just have to grin and bear it <laughs> but um that i didn't know really much about it at all but um i was able to speak to a researcher who did and find out a lot more about it salvia was another one where mm. um there's hardly any that's kind of research. leaf one again isn't it that's yeah a... it's a leaf one that i think some people think it'll be like cannabis but actually it's an incredibly potent psychedelic although it's not like chemically it's not that similar to sort of psilocybin dmt and lsd are all fairly similar in terms of their sort of molecular structure but salvia is very different it doesn't it doesn't seem to be like anything else and um it can be an incredibly intense psychedelic experience slightly different from other psychedelics in that those ones you tend to always be aware that you're having a psychedelic experience it's something that's sort of your kind of part of all you're observing whereas some people report that salvia feels like it's something that's happening to you you've got far less control and it can be far more intense and it's very short lasting but it really 
can mess with your time perception. So it might not feel very short lasting to you while you're going through it. But again, all, almost all of that chapter on Salvia is based on a sort of anecdote and small surveys and not really very much more kind of conclusive evidence. So that's that. I mean, there's a lot of times during the book where I say, I'm afraid we don't know this. But I think it's important to kind of show where the limits of knowledge are rather than... That's one of the problems with the message that certainly I was given as a teenager was that all drugs are bad, which kind of implies that all drugs are the same yeah. and that we know everything about them and they're definitely bad and you shouldn't do them. When actually we know lots about them, but there's also those we don't know and they're all different. And although well, some of them have similar effects, but they're all kind of unique and they all have lots of different effects. Like so many of the drugs in that book either were at some point or still are medications as well as being drugs that people use recreationally. And I find that really fascinating. What's the in terms of reactions that you've had? Uh, what have been the most is, is there, are there any drugs in particular which you've, you've found the stories that you've been told after? you've published or you've broadcast uh, about drugs. Are there any which you thought, this is this is taking me even further into another place of research? Um, definitely, I find talking about this stuff gives me loads and loads of research ideas. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've been really interested in ever since doing the podcast with Scroobius Pip was when we were talking about psychedelics. Um, people who take different psychedelics report that they have different psychedelic experiences on different psychedelics like DMT is noticeably different from mushrooms is noticeably different from LSD but how much of that is expectation that's what I would really I'm really interested to know if because the chemically those three are very similar and they might have slightly different kind of intensities or durations but people who use multiple psychedelics say that it's more than that it's something about each individual drug that is different so but how do you how do you research that? So what Pip wanted to do was um, he he would take we would we would give him one. And he wouldn't tell him which one it was and he'd have to try and work it out from his psychedelic trip. Um, and I, I think that's one that should probably happen on TV rather than research, because I think getting ethics for that might be challenging. But I have a feeling it's something a TV company would love. So. Who knows? Yeah, I got asked about doing that, you know, uh, taking ecstasy for some Channel 4 show. Mm. And I was still on uh, Twitter full Drugs time life. then. And I thought, I just can't face the all the rubbish. Be, you know, if I'm not going to go on question time, I'm not going to, you know, take ecstasy and get to an fMRI. So I think <laughs> I think Keith Allen volunteered for that one in, instead. Well, um, they, did a, they did a second cannabis one where Jon Snow had a whitey. That was... Because I uh, live blogged that, the um, Drugs Live Cannabis for the, for the Guardian. And it was... a. Uh, it was a, it was really good show actually, particularly the cannabis one. I thought was very good, um, but yeah, very Channel Four. Still one of the so most great amazing. Thing. I'd love to work for you, Channel Four, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, that that wonderful footage from was about nineteen sixty seven sixty eight, where the uh, um, the, the, the the TV presenter takes is it LSD? I think he does. I think it is yeah. as well. Yeah, and which which was then spoofed on. I think it spoofed on the on the day to day on, on everything. One of the, yeah, yeah. There was a um, but it's a fascinating thing. To, and I, as far as I know, he then kind of disappears. If you look up his career. I think he went, oh, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> so I think that was the... Anyway, Susie Gage, Say Why to Drugs, is uh, out now. Out now. And, uh, yeah, I found it... Um, it reminded me, yeah, the, the, the few things... I remember once taking ecstasy on a uh, on a canal boat with a friend of mine. 
and uh, we just lay on top of the boat for ages going well this isn't working is it this isn't working a waste of time this isn't working and after about an hour we realised for the whole time we've been holding each other's hands oh, so there we that's are that's lovely that's the uh, that's my uh, William Burroughs drug story on a canal near Bristol um, so say why to drugs Susie Gage and you can also find out more about her work and follow her on Twitter and do all those other things as well um, Leap we should mention briefly as well perhaps which is an interesting organisation yes. and we, we did a podcast together on that didn't we Yes, yes. Law enforcement against prohibition. Um, Yeah, people who used to work in law enforcement who are against... People who've been on the sort of fighting edge of the war on drugs who have first-hand experience of why it might not be working. And they do an amazing podcast called Stop and Search, which I highly recommend. Susie Gage, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to become a patron of the show, get extended episodes, exclusive live streams, lots of other stuff. And also just uh, support us to keep going and making the podcast and the Stay at Home Festival and the documentaries and everything else that we do. Check out the Stay at Home Festival, cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home for all the upcoming guests and shows. Back next week with another new episode. Uh, Can't remember who the guest will be. I think... It might be Oliver Double, but I'll have to check. But I'm not going to check now because I'm recording this into my phone because we can't get to the studio. See you next week. Take care. Stay home. Wash your hands. Be good to each other. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.